Welcome to the Tamarind Learning Podcast, where host Cindy Radu speaks with experts on many topics relevant to the ultra-high net worth family and family office. Cindy was author and co-author of numerous articles related to trusts, family enterprises, and estate planning, and co-authored taxation and estate planning in Canada for many years. She also shares her expertise as a consultant, advisor, and educator to those in the family enterprise space. Cindy is the Chief Learning Officer of Tamarind Learning Canada, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries and their advisors to help them prepare for the responsible stewardship of wealth. Welcome to the Tamarind Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Radu, Chief Learning Officer for Tamarind Learning Canada. Tamarind Learning is an online wealth education platform that develops practical foundational learning programs for beneficiaries and their advisors to help them prepare for the responsible stewardship of wealth. As part of the Tamarind Learning platform, I have the privilege to speak with experts on topics relevant to families of wealth and family offices. It's my pleasure today to introduce Professor Albert Oosterhoff as our guest. Albert is a leading authority in Canada on all things related to trusts. He has written and been a major contributor to several textbooks, including Oosterhoff on Trusts, which is now in its ninth edition. Albert is the editor-in-chief for the Estates and Trusts Journal, and his texts and articles are cited regularly by all levels of Canadian courts. They are also used in law schools and are a go-to source for lawyers in Canada. Albert was a law professor, dean and adjunct professor from 1969 to 2013 at various universities in Canada. And at the University of Toronto, he was awarded the title Professor Emeritus. In addition to this distinguished title, Albert has also been presented with a Distinguished Service Award and the Award for Excellence in Trusts and Estates by the Ontario Bar Association, as well as the Ramon John Natashan Award for Law by the Canadian Bar Association. He's an honorary member of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, has been awarded the Law Society Medal for his contributions to the law over many years by the Law Society of Ontario. He's on the Best Lawyers in Canada list in the category of Trusts and Estates, as well as the Canadian Lexpert Directory. So clearly we have probably the best person in Canada to have a conversation, Albert, with, um, with our listeners today about trusts. And uh, welcome, welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for the, uh, for the very kind introductions. Uh, I think, Albert, the trusts, in my experience, is a topic that I find both for sure family members, but also advisors, including many lawyers, often struggle with. So maybe a good place for us to start is if you can help us understand what a trust actually is in simple terms, um, get into maybe some different types of trusts as well. And... Of course. And the first point I'd like to make here is that a trust is a relationship. It's created by one person who appoints another person as trustee and then directs that trustee to manage property uh, for one or more other persons whom we call beneficiaries. Now, it's a, it's a relationship that's created by and between three parties, uh, 
But to understand how that happens, we have to talk a bit about the kinds of trust that can be created. And there are two kinds. Uh, there are the intervivos trust and the testamentary trust. Well, the second, I think, is pretty straightforward. Uh, it means that it's a trust that a testator has put into his will. And it takes effect only when the testator dies, not before. But the intervivos trust may require a bit of explanation because the Latin term may be confusing. Uh, it simply means that a person wants to create a trust that will come into effect when it's created. So it becomes effective during the life of the person who creates it. And by the way, we call that person a settlor because the, the, the person settles property on trustee for the benefit of the beneficiaries. Now, although there are only two kinds of trust, the listeners have probably heard people talking about all kinds of other trusts, such as a family trust, a charitable trust, a discretionary trust, a marriage settlement, and any number of others. But all of these simply describe what the purpose of the trust is. Uh, all of them really are either an inter vivos trust or a testamentary trust. That's really helpful, Albert. Um, when you say describe the purpose of the trust, can you just give us a little bit more clarity on what you mean by that? Uh, yes. Um, when a person creates a trust, whether testamentary or inter vivos, um, the testator or the settlor uh, will include in that trust directions to the trustee uh, and will say, uh, I'm putting this property in this trust and you're to hold this property for the benefit of uh, various beneficiaries who are named, of course, by the settlor or by the uh, testator. And then uh, the testator can go on and say, um, uh, it's my intention that this, uh, this be used solely for the benefit of my family, current family, and future gen generations. Or it may be that the testator will say, uh, you know, I've got lots of money, and uh, some of it will go to uh, the family, but I want to create a trust that uh, will we'll use the money for the benefit of charities, whether mm -hmm. education or you know, any uh, number of other charitable purposes and so on. Wonderful. So, so a, a trust can have multiple purposes embedded in it, is, is I think what I'm hearing you say, but there also could be a trust that has let's just say a standalone single purpose, like a trust that's set up exclusively for charity. Yes, that's correct. Terrific. Well, tell us a bit more about the nature of the trust because it's a little bit different than we think of a company or a partnership, which is uh, a, a legal entity that exists under, under a statute. So what? tell us more about this a trust and how they come together and what it looks like from a legal perspective. Yes. Um, so I mentioned that the testator or the settler creates the relationship, uh, but the real relationship thereafter is uh, between the trustee and the beneficiaries. And it is, of course, a relationship with reference to 
property. Um, but it's a relationship that may be foreign to, to the listeners. Um, that's because, uh, as you've already indicated, Cindy, um, uh, a trust is not a legal entity. A legal entity is uh, an individual or is a corporation. Um, but most other uh, devices that we're familiar with, such as partnerships and estates and so on, are not legal entities. Um, the legal entity in the case of a trust is the trustee. So, for example, when a trustee deals with creditors of the trust, uh, the creditors can look for payment only to the trustee. They can't sue the trust, but they can, if necessary, sue the trustee mm -hmm. uh, if they're not paid. Yep. But of course, the, the trustee can recover any legitimate expenses from, uh, from the trust property. Uh, and is that something that needs to be written into the trust document itself to be able to recover those expenses? Or is that just a given? It's a very good question, Cindy. It's, um, it's, a, it's really a common law principle that, uh, that I'm speaking about here. Okay. Um, in other words, uh, the law says that if the expenses that the trustee uh, incurred are legitimate and are reasonable, uh, emphasis there on reasonable, then they can be paid out of the trust property. Okay, tell us a bit more about this trustee relationship and, um, and, and even like, how do they get titled to property or do they hold title? Because if a trust isn't a thing, then, you know, when we think about real estate, for example, if I buy a house, I'm on land, my name's on land titles. How does that work in the case of a trust? Again, very good question. Um, the, when the trust is created, uh, the trustee is given title to the trust property. It might be real property, it might be personal property, investments, uh, all kinds of property. They can all be uh, property of the trust. Um, but of course, the, the trustee has to hold that property for the exclusive benefit of the beneficiaries. And that's because the trustee is a fiduciary. And what I mean by that is uh, he is someone on whom the law imposes the burden of absolute fidelity to the trust. Mm -hmm. So he holds the title, but he holds it solely for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And so he may not enter into a conflict of interest. So for example, he may not purchase property from or sell property to the trust because that would be a breach of his fiduciary duty. Neither can he use confidential information that he learned as trustee for his own benefit. And obviously he can't appropriate trust property for his own use. In other words, he's not allowed to take advantage of any opportunities. He must use the knowledge he gains solely for the benefit of the, of the trust, for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And finally, I should probably add this too, that the trustee is accountable to the beneficiaries. Uh, there is a provision in statute and in the rules that trustees have to account on a regular basis. That is to say, they have to in effect, open up their accounts uh, to the court 
and the court will then pass the accounts or say, no, uh, something missing here, and you've got to uh, give an explanation. I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit trail here, but this fiduciary uh, concept is really, I think, important. And one thing that, of course, happens quite often, Albert, is that the trustee is also a beneficiary. So can you just comment on what you've just talked about in terms of their fiduciary role where they're also a beneficiary? Uh, this happens very much, uh, very often in a, in a family trust uh, where the trustee may be, shall we say, uh, the older daughter and the family, and she's appointed trustee, but there are three other children in that family uh, who are just beneficiaries. Now, the trustee then is both a fiduciary and a beneficiary. She's, she's entitled to the property along with her siblings, um, but she has to be very careful that she um, exercises her powers uh, for the benefit of all three of them. In other words, she can't take advantage uh, for her own benefit. Okay, thanks. Well, we'll come back. I think we'll talk about powers a bit a bit later, but let's kind of carry on with this, some of the principles right at the beginning when we start setting up a trust or creating a trust. And again, this is one of these things that in my experience, I find this notion of creating or settling a trust can feel like a lot of smoke and mirrors for people, or it's like gold coins and these massive legal documents. So I'm just going to ask you to sort of de demystify this process of, of how a trust gets created. Sure. Um, uh, as I've indicated, a trust is created when the settlor or the testator declares that she is appointing a trustee to manage property for the benefit of the beneficiaries. Well, it's not difficult to create a trust, but you have to satisfy a few uh, requirements. The first is what we call the three certainties. Those are a certainty of intention, certainty of subject matter, which means property, and certainty of objects, that's the beneficiaries. So certainty of intention means that the settlor directs the trustee to do certain things, such, such as, for example, you must hold the trust property for the benefit of A, B, and C. Now, if instead she uses language of wish or desire, uh, there is no certainty of intention. For example, if she says, it's my wish that you hold the property for A, B, and C, or I hope you will leave some money to my old elementary school teacher, there's no trust. The second uh, requirement is the certainty of subject matter. And that means that you have to describe the property with sufficient particularity so that it can be identified. So if you say, I settle $100,000 into the trust, that's certain. But if you say, I give some of my property to the trust, it's not because you can't figure out what some of the property means. And lastly, um, certainty of objects. It means that you must identify the beneficiaries clearly. So a trust for my three children equally is certain, but a trust for all the people in Canada probably would not be. And then there are two other things you have to do to create a valid trust. First, you must uh, constitute 
the trust. That simply means that you uh, must transfer title to the property to the trustee. The important thing to note here is the property has to be in existence. For example, you can't settle future property such as a house that you expect to inherit when your parents die. It's not yet property. It won't be until they die. And in any event, they may change their mind and not give it to you at all. Mm -hmm. And then one final point here is uh, to create a valid trust, you need to observe certain formalities. Now, it's easy to create a trust of personal property uh, because you can do that orally. It's not advisable. It's much better to put it in writing. Uh, but a trust of real property has to be in writing. Um, and so, uh, of course, in the case of a testamentary trust of real or personal property, that will be in writing because the will is a document that is in writing. But if it's an intervivos trust, and if it's with respect to real property, it must be in writing. So Albert, I'm, I'm wondering, some of the listeners might not be clear what, what you mean when you say real property versus personal property. So um, those are kind of legal, legal terms that maybe would be helpful to clarify a little bit. Yes, of course. And uh, I apologize for not explaining that earlier. Um, uh, real property simply means land. Um, and I, I think it's as simple as that. Okay. Uh, personal property is everything else. It can be cash, it can be investments, it can be money in bank accounts, uh, or um, uh, anything of that sort, anything other than land. Perfect. That's very helpful. And one other thing that comes up for, uh, again, in, in my, my experience is this, you know, what do you settle the trust with? You know, could it be a spoon? You know, does it have to be a gold coin or a silver wafer? And often people use cash, um, which isn't my favorite approach, but it certainly is common, commonly done. So just can you tell us a little bit more about that property that needs to be conveyed to the trustees or given to the trustees to, to establish the trust? Because I think that's a really critical point for people to understand. Yes, it is. Um, in the really old days in England, you could settle a trust or create a contract mm -hmm. uh, by, by handing over a peppercorn. And mm -hmm. so in the document, uh, you could say, I, I, A, give B, the trustee, a peppercorn, and that would constitute the trust. Um, and you can still, well, you don't use a peppercorn today, but you could still constitute a trust by uh, transferring um, $10 or a gold coin to the trustee, and that would constitute the trust. But the important thing to note here is that you can then, uh, provided you, you you make provision for this in the document, you can add further property to the trust at a later stage. Excellent. So it's not restricted to that gold coin or to the $10 that you've initially put in. That's simply so that the trust is now in effect. Right. And so it's important in my understanding, and please help clarify if I'm incorrect, but that we keep track of where that property is, that initial settlement property. That's correct, yes. Okay. 
So often that's uh, kept in a safe or maybe with the, the lawyer's office that helped you create the trust, but you don't want to lose track of it, whatever, whatever it was. That's right. And remember that it's now the title of the trustee. Mm, right. So the trustee has to keep track of it. So this trustee sounds like they have lots of things that they have to do. And we talk about as, as lawyers, we talk about the distinction between powers and duties, but really this idea of things that the trustees have to do versus what they can do. And I think that's another really interesting distinction that I'd love to get your thoughts and comments on. It is in fact a very important distinction, Cindy. Um, now in, in the context of trust, there are two sources of duties that the trustee uh, is required to carry out. Uh, the first are duties imposed by law. Um, and the main one there, of course, is that uh, she must hold the property for the benefit of the beneficiaries and in due course pay it out to the beneficiaries. Um, but the settlor or the testator may impose additional duties on the uh, trustee. For example, uh, the, um, the settlor may restrict the trustee and say that uh, he may invest only in certain kinds of securities. Now, uh, if we're talking about what we as lawyers call a fixed trust, that's a trust uh, that says, pay the property equally to my children, right? It's a fixed trust because you know exactly how many beneficiaries they are and how much each is to get. Well then, the trustee has a duty to distribute the money in equal amounts to the children when each reaches, reaches the age of majority. Um, but sometimes a settlor may create a discretionary trust. For example, she says, I direct my trustees to pay the income from the property to my husband until he dies, and then to distribute the capital in such amounts and to such of my children as my trustees in their absolute discretion shall decide. So that's a discretionary, discretionary trust. And in this case, the trustees have a duty to distribute the capital, but they also have a power to distribute it among the children and to determine the amounts. So we can draw a distinction between a trust, which imposes a duty and a power which does not. But there are two kinds of power. The first is a power that must be exercised, as in the previous example. The settlor there said, you must distribute the capital among my children, but you have a choice as to who gets what. Um, but suppose that that example went on to say, and if my trustees fail to distribute the capital, uh, to my children within two years of my death, then entrust equally for my children. Now, you've got a power that does not have to be exercised because the property will automatically be paid equally to the children if the trustee fails to exercise the power that was given to him. So it, it's uh, really critical. Uh, uh, Albert, when people are are talking to lawyers and drafting trusts to think this through, because those those are really, really important 
um, distinctions between a power and a duty. Yes, they are indeed. So they that's, are indeed. And, yeah. and, and that is, you're quite right, Cindy, this is something that, that uh, lawyers who draft the document have to be very uh, aware of uh, and also should explain uh, what, what they're doing. And of course, what they're doing is, is on the instructions of the uh, settlor or the, or the testator. I've been in scenarios where a beneficiary, typically a son or daughter, finds out that their parents or the trustees have used their capital gains exemption that because of some property that was in the trust that was sold, shares of a private company. So th this comes as a surprise to them because they didn't even know that they were a beneficiary of a trust. So how, how or when um, do trustees or tell beneficiaries that they're beneficiaries of a trust? Like, is that a duty? Is that a power? Is, that, is there some overarching legal requirement with regard to that? Very good question, Cindy. Um, trustees do indeed have a duty to disclose the existence of the trust to the beneficiaries. Now, this is clearly the case for beneficiaries who are first in line, such as in the example I gave earlier, that's my husband and then my three children. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also applies to more remote beneficiaries. For example, if the trust is in favor of my children equally, but if any of them predecease me, then that person's share shall be held in trust for his issue that survive him. And on failure of issue, that share shall be paid equally to my other children. Now then you see uh, the, the primary beneficiaries um, are, the, uh, are the children, but their issue also have a contingent interest. They may never receive the property if all of the children survive the testator, but they can possibly inherit if one of them predeceases. So they are beneficiaries, even though they're not first in line, and therefore uh, the trustee has to tell them too that there is this trust and that they have a potential interest under it. Uh, it's contingent, a contingent interest, we call it. It means a potential interest, right? They yeah. may or may not receive it ultimately. And, and Albert, is, sorry, Albert, just, I just want to clarify the meaning of the word issue, because again, that's a term that we use as lawyers, but it, it can be confusing to lay, lay people. Yes, I'm glad you called me out on that. Because <laughs> sorry. We, we do. No, no, don't be sorry. We, we do that sort of thing all the time. Uh, the term issue means... Uh, Oh, and another term used for it instead is descendants. Mm. So the, the issue or descendants of a person are all those who uh, descended from her. So it will be their children, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on. Uh, so that's what issue means. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay. And is there any any authority or anything that you can point us to that uh, we we need to disclose or we don't need to disclose or give trustees some discretion or sorry guidance around this topic? Yes, indeed. Um, there was a case that was decided by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2018, so a very recent case, 
okay. in which the uh, trustee failed to uh, let one of the potential beneficiaries know that there was a trust and that uh, it had a benefit under it. And the court said in that case that a trustee is obligated to take the steps that an honest, prudent, and reasonably skillful trustee would, would take to notify potential beneficiaries of the existence of the trust and their potential interest under it. So it's very clear uh, that the courts said at the highest level, this is an obligation that trustees have. And by the way, there is similar case law uh, that says uh, that uh, executors uh, have a similar duty to let beneficiaries under a will or uh, beneficiaries uh, uh, when the testator dies without a will, uh, they must let all of those beneficiaries know too of their uh, right to inherit under uh, the intestacy or under the will. So it's a clear, clear duty uh, that trustees and uh, executors have. That's helpful, but it now leads me to another question, Albert. <laughs> what, what does happen if a trustee does something wrong? Because it sounds like they've got a lot of responsibility and um, many trustees are lay people that don't really understand all this stuff. So what happens if, if something goes, they do something that somebody disagrees with or there's a loss in the trust or whatever else could go wrong? Um, I'm going to split the answer into two parts, actually, Cindy, if I may. Sure. Because there are two possible situations in which uh, you may need to remove the trustee. Uh, the first is where there's not necessarily a breach of duty. The trustees, in other words, have not necessarily done anything wrong. And here are a couple of examples of that. Uh, the trustee and the beneficiaries may be hopelessly at odds with each other so that the trust can no longer function properly. Second example, the trustees are hopelessly at odds between themselves and in a deadlock so that the trust can no longer function. Um, so there's, there's nothing wrong necessarily done by the trustees. Uh, but the trust can no longer work. So that may, that's one situation. The other situation is where the trustee did something wrong. So this would be if the trustee has misappropriated assets from the trust, or where the trustee has failed to administer the trust, and basically has sat back and done nothing. Mm. Or, of course, if the trustee is in a conflict of interest. And uh, so these are all situations in which uh, the trustee perhaps ought to be removed. And of course, beneficiaries can make an application to the court to say, uh, this trustee is not working, is not doing the right job, has made all kinds of errors. And uh, so we need to have him removed. Um, so are but, courts pretty pretty open to removing trustees, or is that something that is uh, done well, with care? <laughs> it's a good question. The, court, the courts are actually loath to remove a trustee because the settlor or testator chose him and presumably trusted him, but also because um, it affects the trustee's reputation. And so minor unintentional infractions will not be sufficient for 
removal. But the court will remove a trustee if the wrongs are serious. Uh, the main criterion that the courts look at uh, when um, the issue is should we remove a trustee is the welfare of the beneficiaries. So if the continued presence in office of the trustees will be seriously detrimental to the beneficiaries, then the court will remove him. The main thing that the courts will look at is what's best for the beneficiaries. Excellent. Albert, we could probably talk for another hour, but our, I think our time is pretty close to end. And I would just ask you if you have any closing thoughts or final takeaways that you'd like to share with our listeners today. Uh, yes, I do, Cindy. Uh, um, this is really a comment about the relationship between the trustee and the beneficiary. Uh, a good relationship between these two happens if both sides are of goodwill and the trustee keeps the beneficiaries informed of what's happening in the trust. Um, she should also tell them that she's legally entitled to compensation for the work that she does. And uh, she should tell them what that is normally, uh, what that normally amounts to and what she's entitled to take from the trust for that purpose. Uh, she should also tell them about expenses that uh, are going to be incurred, especially if they're significant expenses. And incidentally, on that point, uh, she, might, she might want to bring an application to the court for permission, for example, to bring a significant proceeding that would be for the benefit of the trust. But, it, you know, if the trust is, is a, uh, doesn't have a lot of assets in it, uh, the court may say, sorry, don't, don't uh, take that expense on. And finally, um, the trustee should give the beneficiaries, especially the major ones, opportunity to contact for her, her for information and about the status of the trust. Really what she needs to do is to account to the trustees or to the beneficiaries on an annual basis. This way, I think you keep, you have and keep a good relationship uh, with the uh, beneficiaries. And, you know, the old saying uh, that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar also applies here too. If you keep the beneficiaries happy, then the trust is likely to work and uh, the trustee can do her job um, as the settlor or the testator intended. Albert, I love that we've ended on the concept of communication between trustees and beneficiaries. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with us today. It's been a great learning experience for me, and I'm sure for everybody who listens to the podcast. It's a great pleasure, Cindy. Mm -hmm.